Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and we are going to continue in this half hour a little more guy talk or guys who talk, which means uh, we have time for your questions. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. My power panel today uh, is Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn. So if you just climbed into your car, we had a very lively uh, hour just before this. And if you want to go back, you're going to have some great uh, discussion available for you. And you can do that at MyFaithRadio.com. All right, gentlemen, let's get back into it. Here's a question. If there's no sadness in heaven, won't we notice the loved ones that are not there? I keep hearing that we will remember everything from Earth, and that really scares me. Well, I think the picture is some people say there'll there'll be no crying in heaven. And the picture is actually that we are crying and that God comforts us. And so in Revelation 24, he says he wipes every tear from their eyes, which means we actually were sad. Now, we were sad because immediately before that passage is what's called the Great White Throne Judgment. This is judgment day. This is the day when all of the lost from the beginning of time until the end of the age will stand before God, his throne and Christ and us actually, don't you know that we will judge the world and they will, their names will not be found in the Lamb's book of life and they will be thrown into the lake of fire. Now that will be a very, very sad day. Remember, God wishes none to perish. God's heart will break that day when most of mankind goes through the broad gate to destruction, and so will ours. Uh, So it will be a very sad day for us. But then he says that's the old order of things. There will be no more death, no more pain, no more crying, for the old order of things has passed away, he says in Revelation 21.4, and he makes all things new. And the next thing we see, a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, and then he says, now the dwelling of God is with man. Cool. I like that. Nice. You know, uh, one of the things I think about, and I'm always cautious because, you know, I've written books about people dying and the Lord being there for them at the end, like John 14 talks about. I've One of the friends that I talked to, Dr. Kent Hunter, who ran the Church Growth Center in Indiana, he and I have been friends for 35 years. And he gave me a story that I put in my book, and it's very interesting because he had a near-death experience where he virtually bled out, and he said he wound up in the most phenomenal place, and the Lord Jesus was there. But here is the key. He said when Jesus sent him back, and he woke up in the recovery room, and his wife was there, and he had two small kids, he said he was very happy to see them, but he was angry that he was back. And he said it took almost a month to get over that sense of, I want to be back there, regardless of my family here. So I don't think it is the sense of we're going to miss our family in the sense that, oh, why aren't they here and woe is me. I think that they were going to be so overwhelmed by the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ that all of that is not going to have much bearing on us anymore like we'd like it to. Now, my wow. goal is simply this. I want to reach out to the people I don't know 
that don't know Jesus now and do everything I can to get them there. Uh, that's exactly what Paul says in Philippians, right? In Philippians 1, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Yep. If I go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet shall I, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Exactly. All right, gentlemen, when, here's a question. When we die, do we immediately go into the Lord's presence in heaven, as I have always believed since being saved? Or is paradise, which Christ mentioned to the thief, a different place, a holding place, as my sister with Seventh-day Adventists believe? <laughs> I do believe that paradise, when Jesus died, was actually the side of Hades, called the bosom of Abraham or comfort or paradise so that when Jesus told the thief you'll today you'll be with me in paradise he meant today you'll be with me in the comfort side of Hades with Abraham and David and all the prophets and all the righteous from the old testament when Christ rose he says he took all the captives free and now the paradise is in heaven so Paul says I know a man who is caught up to heaven the paradise of God so we know today after the cross, that when we die, as Paul says, we are absent from the body, but present with the Lord. And we know that the Lord is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. You know, it's interesting, and I appreciate uh, what Jeff is saying. Jeff is right. We don't have enough details that we'd love to have. And I think that's why we have questions on these things. But I go back, I preached on John 14, 1 to 7 last Sunday about Jesus, you know, talking about this, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. The bottom line of this whole thing is simply this. Jesus says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So whether we are in paradise, whether we are in heaven, I don't care where we're at. If we're in the presence of Jesus, we got it made. We have everything we need, and we won't be missing a thing. Now, will the day come when our bodies will come out of the grave? Yeah, Paul talks about that, and indeed, that day is coming. But you know what? I'm not even going to miss that glorified body because I'm going to be with Jesus. And once I'm with him, nothing else is really going to matter. There you go. I agree. All right. Here's another question, gentlemen. If Jesus is the Word that was with God and was God since the beginning, how scared must he have been to have been God for the first time? and only time ever to turn his face away from him when he was on the cross. It must have been awful for him. Well, it, it was horrible because, as Corinthians tells us, Second Corinthians, I think it's 5, what is it, 21, Jesus became sin for us, Jesus who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so he took on the entire sins of the world, and God the Father couldn't look at him at that point. And that's why Jesus said he turned away. Now, that was not a permanent situation, that was a temporary situation, but he was that ultimate sacrifice, the lamb, whose blood was slain for our forgiveness. And I had one great pastor who was a, a wonderful theologian, and he said, you know, Tom, for that one brief moment, Jesus took on the entire evil of the world and was the one who basically uh, was totally out of the will of the Father because of the sin, but he did that for us and then was restored when he rose from the dead. I I see that view. Uh, the Second Corinthians 5, 20, uh, 21, 17 or 21, is it? The, I think it's he 21. who knew no sin became sin for us or a sin offering for us. I, I get that. There, There's something in me, the one part about this that I struggle with 
is how does God turn his back on God? How does God, if Jesus is God in the flesh, how does God abandon or forsake God? That's, that's how I've always, I, I don't know exactly the transaction that happened on the cross, but I know that when Jesus says that line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting David from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. Sure. If you read Psalm 22, it's all about the crucifixion. Um, and, and, and it even says they mock him, they hurl insults, they shake their head. This is what happened to Christ on the cross. And I, so I think in some way, uh, is Jesus invoking Psalm 22 when David felt far from God? And But we know from Psalm 22, one last word, that God didn't actually abandon David. He actually says, no, he wasn't far from him all along. And we know that God didn't abandon David. And, and I don't know if God actually, you know, abandoned Christ in, in the way that we often hear on the cross. I, I don't know what happened there, but I do know this last part, by the way, that he will never abandon us. He will never leave us and never forsake us. So I'm going to hold on to that. No, hang on to it. And I agree with you, but here's my trouble. I want to be totally literate with the scriptures unless I'm told not to be by the scriptures. I agree with that. And Jesus says, you've forsaken me, not David, not my quoting David, me. So there's something going on there that I don't understand, and I don't have a good explanation for it. All I know is is that there was no play acting on the cross. There was no facsimile on the cross. It was totally real and totally permanent for the removal of sin from this world. And through the blood of Jesus now, we have the gift of eternal life. Absolutely agree with that, for sure. All right, here's a question about my devotions today are in the names of Jesus. Today was Son of David. Mm-hmm. One verse was Second Samuel 7, 12 to 16. In verse 14, it says, when he does wrong. Is this really about Jesus or one of David's descendants? Well, well go ahead, Jeff. Go ahead. Oh. <laughs> no, I'll let you go first. The, these tough ones. We know that Jesus never did wrong, so you have to be careful right. in in this uh, great promise in Second Samuel seven of the coming descendant of David who will rule uh, from the house of David forever and ever and ever. And clearly, that is the Christ, right? But we also know that Christ never did anything wrong. He never broke a law. He never. He always lived by perfect faith. So him, we just quoted the, one of the strong passages on this that he who knew no sin became a sin offering for us. So we know that while we see the dual fulfillment of these words, one for immediate descendant of David, but ultimately in the ultimate descendant of David, who is the Christ. Uh, so a, a phrase like that has to apply to one of his physical de- immediate descendants and not to Christ, I believe. Well, and the other way to look at it too is that he's not talking about David the shepherd. He's talking about David the king, who the Lord put on that throne. And so we're talking about a position here. So when it talks about him being the son of David, it's really in that kind of language back then in the Middle East, that was the person who ascended to the throne and the person who had the same authority over Israel. Now we know Jesus has authority over the entire universe, but that was, that was David was the highest person of authority in the Old Testament in terms of being king. Now the New Testament saying that's Jesus and he's more important than even King David and is now ruler over the entire universe. All right, I'm going to sneak in one more question for the break. And uh, Jeff, why don't you just answer this and we'll go to break. 
uh, isn't there a new heaven and earth created for the millennial when Jesus reigns and the great judgment comes after Satan is released again? Is there going to be a third new heaven and earth after that? So the millennial reign is on this earth. So Jesus returns, Revelation 19. He establishes his kingdom. Uh, his his believers, his followers come to life and reign with him for a thousand years, Revelation 20 says. And that thousand years will be on earth. He, he rules over the earth from Jerusalem, uh, from sea to sea, it says in Scripture. So that is an earthly kingdom on this planet. Then... At the end of the thousand years, after that great white throne judgment that we talked about earlier, that's when God makes the new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem. So actually, heaven and earth come together for all of eternity, and he makes everything new. That's the complete restoration, if you will, back to a Garden of Eden-esque type of environment. Well, that's awesome. All right, we'll take, a, we'll take a break and be right back with more Guide Talk or Guys Who Talk. Let me know what question you have for them. 877-933-2484. Pastor Tom Parrish, Jeff Verdorn are my panel. We'll be right back. Start each week with a moment of reflection and prayer with the Faith Radio Prayer Devotional Email. Sign up today at MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome back to Guide Talk. So glad to have my friends with me today, Tom Parrish, Jeff Verdorn. And we've had a number of different topics today, and the questions have been fantastic. So thank you for texting in your questions, 877-933-2484. So uh, this week, Jeff, you spoke on Tuesday about the rapture. I had a gentleman on yesterday, a professor that's written 60 books, who is a professor at Asbury, uh, who comes from a background that it was uh, uh, didn't really believe in the rapture. From I guess I might have to go back and listen to that portion of the show, but uh, there are different denominations out there that, that say Jesus is returning, but they have different interpretations and different ideas about the rapture. What do you guys, what do you guys want to say to that? Well, we know he is returning, and that's the big truth, right? Jesus is coming back. When he went up to heaven, the angel said, the same Jesus will come back the same way that you saw him go. In fact, he's going to return to the very spot which he went up to heaven from, and that is the mm -hmm. Mount of Olives, and he's going to return right to that very spot. So that's really cool. Uh, I think Scripture points to a, a another event before that day called the rapture of the church. Whatever you believe about the rapture or the timing of the rapture, you're going to have to deal with 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, which are kind of the sure. core rapture passages, and it says this, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven, with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet them in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So whatever you view, you have to deal with that passage. I think I call that the rapture. Many theologians call that the rapture. And I think it's a day when he's going to sound that trump and we're going to be caught up with him in the clouds. I agree. And let me help this a little further. 
I think that a lot of theologians, a lot of Bible study people who look at this, wish there was a chapter where this was laid out in detail. You know, verse 1 talks about when we die. Verse 2, the rapture. Verse 3, you know, the great white throne or whatever that may be. Now, those are spread out in Scripture, but they're not a cohesive statement. In other words, they don't all run together in the same passage. Therefore, we're getting glimpses of what's going to happen, and I believe they're all true. The problem, I think, that probably a lot of people like, you know, the gentleman you're talking about, Bill, is that other people, whether it was Darby or everywhere else, have now put that all together in a formula. Whether that formula is accurate or not, we have no biblical basis to really say it. What we can say, though, is exactly what Jeff is saying. It's there, and it's going to happen. But the sequence and how it all plays out, I'm not sure anybody fully knows. But sometimes it's taught as though it is that is the only way it's going to happen, and I think we're all going to be somewhat surprised on that day. Mm-hmm. It's it's why I describe this, and when I teach on eschatology or the study of end time stuff, I always describe it as a giant puzzle. There's yeah. all these pieces all over Scripture, and we need to put the pieces together and 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 paint the picture of the puzzle to finish the puzzle to put all the pieces together. See, I would would honestly, you know, I would honestly recommend people from my church to go to your class because the way you do it gives me a lot of hope that you're as biblical as you can be and you're as honest with the word as you can be. And I appreciate that. All right. Here's another new heaven and new earth question. And that is, will the new heaven and the new earth be two different places or is the new heaven and the new earth one place? I think that like we were just just talking about, I think they come together. Okay. And and Revelation 21 verse 3 says, and so the dwelling of God is with man. So I think we actually don't spend eternity in heaven. Heaven actually spends eternity with us. And so God, who is in heaven and apart from us today, we are on earth today for all of eternity. Heaven and earth will be together. I'm with you. All right. Um, what is the mercy seat? Who wants to jump into that one? Oh, sure. Well, that's the Old Testament. Uh, right. What's the Ark of the Covenant? Okay. And the mercy seat was the covering on it in which on the Day of Atonement, the priest would go in and sprinkle the blood of the lamb or whatever for the forgiveness of all people. In the New Testament, Paul talks about the fact that Jesus has literally become that and that his sprinkled blood is the same thing as back there, but his is once and for all. It's not a repeated exercise. Okay. Yeah, there's there's a couple of really cool pictures here that obviously, as Tom said, were fulfilled in Christ. So the mercy seat being on top of the Ark of the Covenant, so we had two angels on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, and the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holy place where the Ark sat once a year and with a blood sacrifice for to atone for his sin, and the sins of Israel. Christ, who is the perfect Lamb of God, atones for our sins in his sacrifice. And 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 one really cool picture that I just think is so neat that it, it it's, it's not obvious from the description, but when Mary comes into the tomb of Jesus, it says in Scripture that she saw two angels, one at the head and one at the foot. And I think what she was seeing was actually a picture of, 
of the old mercy seat that was in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle in the temple. That's where the sacrifice, if you will, the blood was laid, where Christ's body laid, which was now gone. And and I think that's a fulfillment of the mercy seat in reality, which is found in Christ. Isn't that a cool picture? That is a great insight, Jeff. I really affirm that. That's very true. And quite honestly, after all these years, that's the first time I've really put it together into my mind that way where you said it, although I knew both. Thank you. Yeah. Cool. Beautiful job. Beautiful job. All right, here's a question. I was with a friend that thinks we are evolved from apes, and the story in the Bible are stories that were just told around the campfire and not words from God. And, you know, it's inter- it's interesting when this kind of stuff comes up in conversations with people, and then what kind of response would you give? I love these kind of people. There's so much fun to talk to. Uh, I usually give them plenty of room, and then I will say to somebody like that, so you really believe in the Teddy Roosevelt philosophy of life, that he who has the biggest stick wins. Well, well, what do you mean? No, I'm not not saying that. Well, wait a minute. If we're simply evolved and there is no God, then there is no truth or objective reality. And therefore, whoever has the most power wins. So Adolf Hitler had a right to do what he did in Germany. Wouldn't you agree with that? And I watch these poor people turn inside out because they grab onto this stuff. They never think through what this really means. If we are simply animals that have evolved, then there, then conscience doesn't really mean a thing. Morality doesn't mean a thing. Truth doesn't mean a thing. And they don't want to live in a world like that, but they've never thought it through. No. That's absolutely right. And, and one more aspect that isn't true, if we evolve from apes, then there is no literal garden. There's no literal Adam. There's no literal tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's no literal command not to eat from the tree. Therefore, there's no literal fall of mankind, and therefore, there would be no need for a literal second Adam, who is the Jesus, to come and redeem mankind of their sin. So some want to say that our question of origins, whether it's evolution or theistic evolution or special creation that God actually made Adam, is a debatable matter within Christianity. I actually think it's very important, because if there's no literal Adam, theologically, there's no reason to have a second Adam who is the Christ. And so I think theologically it's actually very important that we understand that God made Adam in a garden perfect. Okay, we have a minute left, and this uh, my next guest is, is a musician. So this last question that just got asked on the text line was, can music itself escort and welcome spirits, that is, the Holy Spirit, or conversely, evil spirits? Hmm. I Well, let's put it this way. Usually the music or the melody itself uh, is not so much of a problem. But it's kind of like yoga and the other things that we do where there's, you know, people chant a certain thing. People are chanting most often Hindu phrases they don't even know what they're saying, and that is filled with the names of a lot of gods. So I think that music is the same way. You have to look at the lyrics carefully. The actual style of music I don't think is the, or the melody is the issue. The issue is what is this music conveying to us through what the lyrics are bringing to us, and we've got to be careful with that. All right, gentlemen, uh, extended version of Guy Talk, and even that goes fast, doesn't it? It really does. It does. Yeah. Thank thank you, you, Bill. Thank you so much. I will see you next time. And, of course, you can send your questions over anytime during the week. It doesn't have to be during Guy Talk. I'll collect them and and present them. Take a break, and Ron Block, Grammy Award-winning musician, is next.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Well, I've been excited for this all day. Ron Block is my guest. He's a Grammy award-winning musician and songwriter, and he is uh, really best known as a member of the bluegrass band Allison Krauss and Union Station. But as a kid, his dad owned a music store, and he grew up in California. So what are the odds a California kid might pick up a banjo before a surfboard? Ron, I'll let you answer. <laughs> well, that's what happens when you see Lester Flat on TV when you're 12. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of does it so, to you, doesn't it? It really did. And I'm not sure why, because, you know, I grew up hearing all the, you know, sort of like Marty Robbins and and Paul McCartney and the Beatles and Fleetwood Mac and all that kind of stuff. But there's something about bluegrass um, and especially the banjo that just really struck me. And I think it's the passionate nature of the banjo. Yeah. Now, I'm going to get to your book in just a minute, Abiding Dependence, which is amazing. But let me just ask you a few more music questions, if you don't mind. So I, I, I'm wondering, were you a little bit of the introvert type uh, that was a little shy, but boy, you put a guitar or a banjo in your hand, and then boy, you come al- alive at the party? Yeah. I, well, you know, if you when I was a teenager, if, if somebody had said, hey, do you want to go to this party? I would say, is there pick in there? Are people <laughs> be playing music? Yeah. Like that yeah. was, I mean, because I would get there. And I'd be there five minutes, and I'd get out my guitar or banjo if nice. people were playing. And if they weren't playing, I'd go, I'm going to stay home and practice. Uh-huh. So so it really was, it became a way to, you know, like, it was a way to be social. And it became really the way that I spoke. You know, it's like, yeah. it's, it's, it became a voice, you know, guitar is a voice and banjo is a voice to me. Yeah. So. So your dad is a music store, and you pick, you pick banjo. So your dad must have thought that you were... You know, smart enough to pick banjo, you're smart enough to be a surgeon. He should have sent you to medical school. <laughs> I think he wanted to send me to business school, and okay. I think I was I wasn't having much of it. Yeah, well, that's that. <laughs> you know, that's what it's like with with parents sometimes. So I'm, right. I'm curious. One more question about your uh, your musical uh, background, because as a kid, I know when you said I'd rather go home and practice. What kind of practice time did you put in? What What were your days like? How many hours? Uh, Absolutely every spare moment that okay. I was not. So so I guess from the age, you know, from the age of, I guess, 13 until I was 16, I, it was just going to school and then coming home and practicing. Mm-hmm. So and also I was, a, I was a big reader. So I'd be reading lots of times I'd get a, if I got a new book, I'd be reading for hours. Mm-hmm. But, but my but I played I practiced every spare second. Um oh. And then when I started working for my dad at 16, well, that introduced for two years, I had to go to school and go to work part time. And so that cut into my practice time. But also I was also playing on the weekends in bands by then. So I was getting a lot of time playing. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And then when I turned 18, I didn't want to go to college. And so, you know, I, I just lived at home till I was 21 and paid rent, like really pretty cheap rent. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I just worked on music and worked for my dad's store part-time, and I just worked on music like every spare yeah. second. Yeah. So. Well, Ron, thank you for indulging me with some of these of questions. Course. I'm hugely interested. So I do want to talk about your book, Abiding Dependence, Living Moment by Moment in the Love of God. And, of course, our lives, um, we're not, just because we commit our life to God, we're not protected from life's difficulties. 
uh, but we need to be depending on him. And that way we can have our courage and we can have the guidance and protection of Forge Ahead, as you say. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. So Definitely. go ahead. Sorry. No. So um, tell me when you became a Christian and, and how your identity got formed. Well, uh, yeah, I, my mom was, to go all the way back, my mom was from an abusive situation when she was a kid. So all, all of, she and her brother and her sisters were all, you know, abused. And so she carried that. And um, when she married my dad, uh, she, they had me. And two years later, she found God. She found Jesus. And she found that there was a father who loved her. And that was absolutely life-changing for her. Um, and so I grew up in that love. And so by the time I was six years old, I went forward in church, and she bought me a Bible, and, and I was re- she taught me to read really early. So I was reading the Bible and books about the Bible from the time I was about six years old. Uh, but, you know, God, of course, was more like Zeus to me. You know, it was a Zeus or Jupiter. It was like the angry wrathful God that loves you, but if you sin, he's angry, and and then you have to, you know, repent and, and you know, and be afraid. <laughs> so it wasn't, you know, I didn't have a great concept of God. Uh, and then as I was growing, uh, things happened in my life that created what I would call a hole, creates, you know, things create a hollow in you where you are looking for identity. Mm-hmm. And so I, so when I started playing music, and music music began to fill that hole. And so as a teenager, I started getting my identity from playing music. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I'm a musician, right? So I'm a musician. And, and so if I play after a while, though, it, it was an upward track for a long time. So I felt good. But after a while, after I joined Allison's band, uh, you know, it's like you don't always play well. So when I played badly, I felt badly. And I, when I played well, I felt good. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. I'm trying, to, so I'm trying life, to imagine you playing poorly. That's my problem. Well, it's you know that's all you know. Most people, including the band, would probably say most of that's in my own head. You know, but it's perfection. <laughs> perfectionism, you yeah. know, drives that stuff and and the need to be perfect rather than simply being excellent and being satisfied with excellence rather than perfection. Because we can't attain perfection, we can attain excellence which I did, <laughs> yeah. but I wasn't satisfied because, you know, it, I, it, I didn't feel it was good enough. And so that's the problem with getting your identity from anything other than God, because you never feel you're good enough. You never feel you're worthy. So you're always striving and trying and, and struggling. And so my life in the early 90s was like that. It was an up and down kind of life. And that's when I began to really in being a good, raised a good Baptist boy, it's when I went back to the Word and I just said, okay, I know the answers are here. And I started looking at the Word a different way. I started going, okay, I think I know what this means, but I don't really know because mm-hmm. I was taught things and some of those things are right and some of those things are wrong. And so I began to kind of take those apart. So when I began to read the Word, for the first thing I did was take it at face value. You know, rather than going, oh, when Paul says we're dead to sin, what he really means is, and I started going, he says we're dead to sin. So he means we're dead to sin. (laughs) It's really, it's really that simple. And when he says we died with Christ, okay, somehow I died with Christ. Literally, I died. 
And I was resurrected to walk in newness of life as a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Somehow, that's the reality, and I'm believing in a false reality, that I'm the old self. So I had to, like, I had to re- basically reprogram my thinking to reflect what the Word said. I love that. Ron Block is my guest. You can learn more about him at ronblock.com, R-O-N-B-L-O-C-K, Com. So, uh, Ron, in your, in your new book, Abiding Dependence, I love that title, by the way, it, it, it's meant to really uh, bring us to the beauty and richness of the Gospels in 40 days of meditation. Tell me what abiding dependence means. Um, well, it was a phrase that I used in the book several times, and it, it, simply, it was the best way that I could describe, you know, when Jesus said, you know, I'm the vine, you're the branches— uh, if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. Uh, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay, that's like an either-or. So again, that's taking the word at face value. So it's an either-or. We either abide in him and bear much fruit, or we can do nothing. So if I don't abide in him, I won't do anything like that's eternal or lasting. Mm-hmm. So, so to abide, if I'm living in my house with my wife, which I am, then I'm abiding with her. Now, that doesn't mean we're, we have to be in each other's face all the time. You know, we can, I, I can be downstairs working. She can be upstairs or outside doing stuff. But we know the other person is always there, and we can always go reference the other person, go talk to the other person. And so that's what abiding in Christ really is. It's like you know that that Christ, that God, the Father, that the Holy Spirit is always there with you, in you, living through you, and you trust that He's always there and always available, and His resources are always available to you. So that's mm-hmm. abiding, and then the dependence part is knowing that you can get those resources. You don't have to get them. You have them. They're there. They're just ready. So if you need love for somebody— and you're angry at them, you can really begin to go, oh, thank you, Lord, that your love in me for that person, even though I'm angry at them and I, I'm tempted to hate them. But mm-hmm. you love them, and so I'm going to say that I love them because you are in me. And you're, you're my heart and my own heart, whatever befall, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then, so then what begins to happen as we begin to do that and make that a practice is we begin to see that love for other people. And it doesn't depend on our self-effort and our trying to love people and all the religious stuff that we do as believers. Mm -hmm. Ron Block is my guest. His book is called Abiding Dependence. And I'm just on day one here. It's a, it's uh, the Gospels in 40 days of med- meditation. And day one, Ron, you you really emphasize the deity of Jesus, but then you spend a lot more time writing about his humanity, which I find very interesting. Why did you decide to go that direction? Uh, well, I had to. You know, we we all say Jesus was God, both God and man. Yes. But I would say many believers believe Jesus was God, and he was partially man because. I'm a man, and, and you know, I don't have uh, God powers of my own. I can't just, like, heal people, and I can't just, you know, be everything I'm meant to be, and I can't, you know, I, can't, I just can't do that. So I think we believe Jesus was God in human form, which he was, 
but we believe that he operated as God, as the Son of God, but he didn't. That's the that's the key to Jesus being both God and man, 100% God, 100% man, mm-hmm. is that he set aside the his own use of his own uh, powers and rights and privileges as the Son of God. So mm-hmm. he set that aside and said, I'm not going to use any of that. I'm going to be a man that has to trust completely and totally in in the Father within me. And I have to listen to the Father, obey the Father, use the Father's power, uh, and I have to trust the Father is going to speak to me in every situation, and I have to live off of the Father. And so Jesus, in that way, he modeled what we have to do. But he did it in humility because he set aside what he was. He didn't cease to be God, but he set aside the use of his omniscience. There were times in the Word he doesn't know something, and he set aside his omnipotence. He had, he got tired. He got hungry. He had to sleep. He had to rest. And then he set aside, uh, you know, he set aside his omnipresence because he was localized in a human body. So he set those things aside in humility because his job, his mission, was to come here and be just like us. Mm-hmm. And that's that's incredibly comforting to me to know that he's the first goer. That he that he took he really did take my place not just on the cross but as a man living a life so I can look to what he did and go that's exactly how I'm supposed to live I'm supposed to trust him and the Father and the Spirit inside of me to live through me just like he did. Mm-hmm. Ron, where are the uh, Grammy store? Do you put them on the mantle above the fireplace or are they <laughs> propping a door open? <laughs> no, they're actually they're in the library. Okay, they're way right. up high. They're way up high. Okay, and nobody ever notices them because they're way <laughs> up high, unless they look up, which most people never do. Uh, all right, all right. Let me take a little break. I'll come right back with Ron Block. He's written a book called "Abiding Dependence: Living Moment by Moment in the Love of God." You can learn more about him at ronblock.com. He's a Grammy Grammy Award winning musician and songwriter. He, Best known as a member of the bluegrass band Allison Krauss and Union Station. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. I'm back with Ron Block. So glad to have him on the show. Ron, I'm going to give you your final Jeopardy question right now. Are you ready for it? <laughs> yeah. Now, remember, you have to answer this in the form of a question, you know, because this is final Jeopardy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, here's the question. What friend of yours did I have on my show two weeks ago? Whoa. I do not know. Buddy Green. Uh, no, no. Aunt. So I don't know how much you bet, but you, I don't know how much you bet, but you lost. The answer is who is Kristen Scott Benson? Oh, great! Yeah, great. Yeah, I've yeah. done uh, workshops with her, uh, banjo workshops. Yeah, I figured so. Yeah. All right, let's get, let's get back to your book, Abiding Dependence. In the, in the book, you you spend some time on certain words like belief and repentance. 
and you say sometimes those are misunderstood. Maybe you would give us uh, the difference between these words and, and, and give an example of what, when Christ taught the true meaning of each word. Well, you know, if you look at, you know, Jesus and Paul and the other, you know, the other disciples, you know, they, when they say, for instance, repentance, the word is metanoia, and it just means to turn from something to another thing. So to repent is to return or turn. There's a, a the Hebrew word is similar. It just means to turn, to, to return. So when we are to repent, it's simply, you know, we've turned away. We're following a feeling or a temptation or whatever, and we're heading in that direction. And, you know, every man is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed, which means you want to do the thing. You're pulled. And then to repent simply simply means you just turn back and go, oh, wait a second. I forgot Christ lives inside of me. So I don't have to follow that. I have power. You know, I mean, uh, Paul says sin shall not have power over you. Because you're not under the law, but under grace. So, so when we turn our metanoia and just simply turn back and behold Christ living in us and see that, temptation loses its power because we're not under the law. That is, we're not, we're not independent selves trying to keep rules in order to please God. We're dependent selves. We're abiding selves that are dependent and that have the source of the very source of the law living inside us, the source of love and everything else good. So mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not independent, I'm dependent, and I'm trusting, and I'm walking according to that trust. So, so metanoia is simply turning back to that. That's all mm-hmm. repentance is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and belief, when you talk about you know, belief, we, we, in English we can say, I believe that, and that can mean I wholeheartedly bet the farm on that, or it can mean, yeah, I believe that the moon is a, a sphere. And that doesn't affect my life at all, and it's intellectual assent to an idea about the moon. Mm-hmm. It doesn't affect me. So you can, in English, you can believe something with your intellect and have it not and not do anything about it. But if I, you know, if I fade, let's use that word. Um, if if I sit, if I see a chair and I go, that chair, I believe that chair will hold me. Well, that's not faith in the biblical sense. That's just intellectual belief. But I have to sit in the chair, and then that's faith. I'm trusting in the chair. I'm putting my weight on it. I'm sitting my tail in it, <laughs> and yeah. I'm and I'm going to risk falling down because I believe that chair will hold me. And we do the same thing all the time. Like I get on a plane, and I uh, I trust the pilot I don't know, and a vehicle that weighs weighs hundreds of tons full of people is going to fly in the sky and it's made out of metal and it's a tube. I trust that that's going to get me, that that's going to get me to my destination. Yeah. Well, that's, that's faith. Cause I'm betting my life on it. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, but it's, that's a natural faith. So when we're dealing with God word faith, we're trusting in an, in an invisible God who says he's present, he's with us, and he's not only with us, but he's inside us and available to us, and that he loves us. So to, to put our weight on that, that is a life-changing proposition. Mm-hmm. That's, so that's biblical faith, as opposed to going, yeah, I believe God exists. Yeah, I believe Jesus died on the cross. Well, you can believe those things with your intellect, and they don't mean anything. 
Right, right. Ron Block is my guest. His book is Abiding Dependence, and it's a book that, a meditation that really helps us live and rest in Jesus. Now, I'm going to ask another question, Ron. I'm going to try to ask this one really carefully. On day 15, you write that when we have a continual expectation of sin, the resulting self-condemnation dishonors and downplays the power of Christ. Maybe you would explain how this happens and, and, and what we should do when this occurs in our life. Well, uh, I can put it best in context of being a musician, uh, and any musicians listening will know this, or any sports people or really anybody that has to do something at a high level. You can't, you can't, I can't go on stage and go, I'm a terrible musician, I'm never going to be any good, and I'm probably going to make tons of mistakes, and the band's going to laugh at me, and and then I'll probably get fired and I'll lose my job. And right. You, so yeah, you, you yeah. can't, you can't approach anything or the, you know, the sports guy, I'm, I'm going to lose. And well, attitude is everything. So faith really, that means faith is everything. So, so in order for me to play well, I have to go into the situation. Of course I practice, you know, right. Mm-hmm. I prepare, I do all that stuff. But then when it's time to step out there, I go, well, I did due diligence here. And I'm going to step out there, and we're going to have an awesome time. People are here to see us. They're happy to be here. Mm-hmm. They're, they're on our side, and this is going to be awesome. And when I do that, the show goes way better than if I'm self-conscious. So when you translate that to the Christian frame, if I'm going around all the time going, I'm such a horrible, filthy, rotten sinner. I'm such a sinner. I'm so, and if you go around sin-conscious all the time, you're actually out of, you're not walking in faith or abiding mm-hmm. because, because Hebrew says by one sacrifice, he's perfected forever. Those who are being made holy in every moment. So you're holy and God has, you know, Christ died and the blood of bulls and goats and bulls and goats couldn't take away sins. If they could, the worshipers would have gone away without a sin consciousness. So we're supposed to live in a way that isn't sin conscious all the time. We're supposed to live Christ aware all the time and go, his life is in me. I've got everything I need for life and godliness. I'm filled full in Christ. I'm complete in him. So we're supposed to step out into every day and go, this is going to be awesome. God's going to do some amazing things today. It's a different way of living. Yeah, it is. And you don't want to be listening to the lies of the enemy for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and so it does dishonor God. That's what I meant by that. It's like okay. to to do to say that and and to always be focused on sin. You're basically saying Christ is not powerful to, enough to overcome my sins. Mm-hmm. So, Ron, let's uh, go back to your book, Abiding Dependence, because there's nowhere else I want to go except there. And you talk about knowing our identity in Christ. All right, how does that affect our our relationship and our interactions with others? You know, love God, love your neighbors. How does that all work together? If, you know, if I know, first of all, if I know, you know, we love God because he first loves us. So, but simply being, knowing that God loves me as I am, doesn't really give me power to love other people. I mean, I love God, but it doesn't give me power to love other people. What gives me power to love other people is knowing that God is love, and then God in Christ is placed in me, and therefore, in Christ, I am love. 
because he's inside of me. Now, I'm me, the human. I'm not calling the human God or the hu- that I'm love. I'm saying when I look in the mirror, I can go, wow, as ridiculous as this seems, Christ lives in that guy. Mm-hmm. And so, so when I feel frustration or anger at somebody or I'm tempted to even hate them, I can say with all confidence, Lord, you're loving me for them, and I trust you to say and do the right thing, and I release all that emotion to you. Only you can change my emotions. I'm not in control of that any more than I'm in control of the weather. So I'm going to trust you with my emotions, but I'm going to believe that you're loving me for that person, and you're going to, you're going to be and do everything for them. Mm-hmm. So you can, you can change situations simply. You can change the atmosphere of a room when you walk into it if you have those attitudes, if you carry your abiding as a present, powerful uh, actuality. If you carry that with you into a room, you change the atmosphere, just like a person that thinks they're – you know, they're self-conscious and they're a horrible sinner and people don't like them. People that go into a room with that attitude change the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And so everybody kind of goes, oh, they're kind of weird or, or they're, they feel down, so let me comfort them. And, but if you go into that with an attitude of like, you know, God loves me and, and through me he's going to love other people and he loves all the other people and through those people he's going to love me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's it. That changes your the way you talk yeah. to people, the way you visit, the way you hang Amen. out, the way you play music. Everything. Yeah. Ron, we're at uh, shaving a haircut right now. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for doing the interview. It's been great meeting you. Oh, great to meet you too. Thanks I sure so enjoyed it, Bill. Thank Thanks you so much. much. Ron Block's been my guest. Abiding dependence. Thanks for spending time with me today. Have a great night. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.